Okay, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Uh, and every Tuesday, Hugo and I kind of talk about the issues of the day. So, Hugo, thanks for coming in. How was your weekend? Um, I can't even remember. I, I, I think we went apple picking and we went to a corn maze. Um, I, What's I, a corn I, maze? You know, it's just like a big field of corn that they let overgrow and then they carve a maze through it and they build little wood bridges, little places that you can like climb. Like an escape room for corn? Yeah, like an escape room for corn. I think they're kind of a thing. Where, where was it? It was in, in Bridgehampton. I mean, it was like there's like a farm right near our house and, and uh, it's like it's pretty nice. I mean, um, uh, there's a lot of people there and, you know, you kind of you, it's just it's like being in a very, you know, if, if, if they inflicted terrible things on the people who didn't complete the maze, it could be like another Netflix show, like Squid Game. But, yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny you mentioned that because one of the one of the attractions at the corn maze is this is this like air gun where you shoot like corn cobs, like old cobs of corn or whatever you call them at like a barrel. And if you hit the barrel, like you get some prize. And so you just keep hearing this popping of the air gun. And I was like, oh, my God, what if they had something besides corn cobs in there, you know, and they were firing them into the maze. But, you know, also like big melons that can really explode, like a hydraulic caliber. I feel like that would be. Big melons. <laughs> All right, Bradley, we have some important stuff to talk about. Don't be yeah. distracted by this. How was your weekend? And then we're going to get to the serious stuff. Oh, uh, my weekend was nice. We stayed in the city and I'm trying to think if anything particularly uh, interesting or noteworthy happened. Um, no, no, Okay. Okay. That's not good. Listeners don't care about your okay weekend. So, um, all right. So the theme of today's podcast is, is Joe Biden screwed if Americans don't get the Christmas presents they want? Give us your 30 second answer to that. And then we'll get into the rest of the podcast. So, so I, I think that, you know, it's funny. If you look at things that have dragged down Biden's numbers, like the Afghanistan pullout, um, like uh, the border crisis, and, and Americans sort of theoretically care about this stuff, and if you happen to be impacted by it because you have, you know, a family member in the military or stuff at the border or something like that, um, you, you may care about it personally, but there's still kind of conceptual problems for the vast, vast, vast majority of people. And we expect able to get a Christmas present sometime. And we expect that in the world of the internet and FedEx and everything else, even if we do it at the last minute, if we just pay a little more, we can get what we want. And that is like an expectation as like a, a fundamental right of being an American. You can get your shit for Christmas. And if because of all of the delays in shipping, all of the sort of uh, bottlenecks of the different ports, especially the port of Los Angeles, uh, the, the shortage uh, of chip manufacturing capability in China and everything else results in people who, let's say, by December 1st, if you start ordering your Christmas gifts, there's a shot that you're not get them in time. Um, Biden will be blamed for that completely. And the Republicans are doing a really good job already of laying the groundwork for this, both in the way that they're going after uh, the, the problems at the port and even Buttigieg and taking his paternity leave, which obviously there's absolutely nothing wrong with doing that. People should do that. But, you know, they're taking this kind of progressive policy that should exist and saying the Secretary of Transportation is not focused on getting Americans at Christmas gifts in time. And I think that actually plays pretty well for me. Now, the Secretary of Transportation is not actually in charge of, like, shipping, though, right? I mean, transportation is about people getting from place to place. Like it's Yeah, about- well, no, there, there are federal elements to 
ports, right? So they're generally run by municipalities um, or states, kind of depending on where you are. So in New York, the ports are run by the Port Authority, which is a state right. agency that shares power between New York and New Jersey. Um, but, but generally speaking, they're local. However, uh, one, there are certainly federal implications. By the way, you know, throughout a lot of American history, because the ports have been so corrupt, uh, you've had Justice Department monitors, you know, all over the dock workers in almost every single place. Um, right. So there's plenty of his precedent there. But on top of that, look, you know, at the end of the day, it, people expect uh, the president to be able to solve problems that are really tractable and serious. And in many ways, not getting your Christmas gifts on time is about as serious as it gets for a long have you had any problems like you or your family getting anything? Have you like tried to do you need to buy something or wanted to buy uh, something and you well, couldn't get no, it? No, but I'll give you two things. One is when I bought a car this summer and the dealer said, look, you know, here are a couple of things I have on the lot that you, you know, that are a lot of you want. And if you don't want any of those, that's fine, but it'll probably be at least six months. Right. And I picked one of the cars in a lot and it was I'm not a Because you generally don't care about cars. <laughs> I don't I don't care. Yeah, um, while well, I was getting a PlayStation 5 for Hanukkah, and I ordered it on StockX, I guess shameless plug for them, uh, pretty early and paid an inflated price for it so that I specifically wouldn't run into the problem. And um, you got it. I got it. It's under our bed. Wow. I'm, I'm impressed, Bradley. You, 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 have the, you have the Hanukkah present already under the bed, and it's not even November yet. Oh, but only because of this particular – well, two reasons. One, he lobbies me furiously forever he wants, so there's no escaping it, right? Because your just, son lobbies you furiously about something? That seems so, so at odds with the family dynamic. Yeah, how far can <laughs> fell from the tree? Um, so he's fucking relentless. So you can't really escape it. And on top of it, um, he's very clever. And so he picked up the – we might not be able to get this in time if we don't act. Oh, and he used that on you. I see. He, you know, I think, I think Tusk Strategies or Tusk Holdings needs a new – division run by Lyle that's just about like how to lobby your parents. What that a, is Harper's worst nightmare. Yeah. What a brilliant idea that is though. I mean that would be that would just be a mass business. Podcasts, you know, TikTok, you know, everything. Truth is, yeah. YouTube channel, yeah. Yeah. Um, so there was a Washington Post headline that I think framed the sort of Biden situation uh, perfectly. So I'm just going to repeat the headline and get you to answer it. Are Americans growing wary of big government as Joe Biden is trying to pass his big agenda? Yeah. So, look, I, I think that the answer is it, it's not that people's wariness of government necessarily goes up and down all that much. I just think we're caught in this chicken and egg cash 22 like situation where uh, – People run for office claiming that they are transformational and different and will solve all of our problems. So Obama was sort of post-political. Trump was going to drain the swamp. Biden was a return to competence. Nothing has really worked, right? And because the, the underlying problems in the system are too intractable for a president with a good bully pulpit to overcome that, as we keep seeing over and over again. So people run for office promising to fix it. They never can. So they're already really disappointed obsessed with um, and then there's constantly this request by government for more resources to do their jobs, which means higher taxes or fees or whatever else. And if people have confidence that the government can deliver the services effectively, I think by and large they're okay with the higher taxes. Some people might not be, but you know when you look at some of the European countries, 
that have bigger social safety nets and higher tax rates uh, because the government effectively delivers these services. I think generally it's accepted. I think the problem becomes when the healthcare system is so bad that a lot of people uh, would never want to sort of be on Medicaid or like that, or if the education system is so bad that a lot of people send their kids to parochial school, uh, private school, whatever it is, so you're already subsidizing what the government's supposed to be doing for you because of their incompetence. And then they want more money on top of that. that that's enough. But you're but you're talking about sort of issues that have remained, you know, fairly, you know, stable over the last generation. Like, what's you know, Biden comes into office with what appears to be a mandate to really, you know, do transformational things. Uh, there's this idea that that was sort of popularly seized upon that like the amount the government can borrow and spend is like probably a great deal higher than, than previous, like, experts thought. Uh, you know, we're less than a year in. Yeah, but I, don't, I don't think that's right. So hold on, look, look, I just think your, your premise is wrong, right? My Which premise. is, so number one, he didn't come in with a mandate, right? He barely beat Trump. He won, right. thank God, but he barely, if, if, if we're fighting over 20,000 votes in Michigan and 30,000 in Arizona and everything else, that means the election was really close. So that's number right. one. Number two, he came in with... They were supposed to win the Senate pretty easily. Schumer really underperformed, and they had the 48 seats, and they needed to win both those Georgia seats to get to 50 in the Senate, and they did. Right. They came in with, I think, a three-seat majority in half. So one, not much on mandate, but two is if we think about why Biden won, it's because he was centrist and moderate. Um, you know, you had Sanders and Warren and others running on the far left for president, and Biden, by sort of sticking to the middle, uh, was able to beat them, and I think that's the only reason why he's able to beat Trump as well. And then he comes into office, and I don't know if it's because he is old and weak and just kind of out of it, or they hired people in a very different way for the government than they did for the campaign, but I think the team at the White House calling the shots seems to be far more progressive uh, and less leaning. And, and yet, like most of the components of the spending plan, the child tax credits, the universal pre-K, ex- expanded child care and family leave, tax hikes on corporations and the wealthy. I mean, these are moderate positions that most Americans support. And, and those are the biggest pieces of the spending plan. How does the how does the public opinion of those shift? I mean, it hasn't shifted radically. It's just dropped. Well, it's it shifted. It's, it's a few things. So one is that the framing's been Right? We're talking about dollars instead of policies. Right. So the truth is, these are all intangible numbers to us, right? And you right. can't really conceive of $3.5 trillion. And if Biden has said, I want to spend $500 billion, or I'm sorry, let's say Biden said, I want to spend $1.5 trillion for all this stuff, and Joe Manchin said, show me $500 billion, then the left would be ecstatic if they got their $1.5 trillion, right? So first of all, the problem is they made this about numbers uh, instead of about actual policies and programs, and that's that's probably okay. Wait, let's unpack that for a second because I think it's a really good point. And and the the number became like the objective um, for for the administration. I think that's definitely true. Why did that happen? Like like what what is that is that a decision you think got made, or did, was it just like a blunder where they weren't paying attention? It, it, it was. A, I think it was a blunder in that they were you know so intent on kind of appeasing the progressives. Um, that they basically work for them to come up with a plan. And by the way, I, I support the $3.5 trillion by and large because I do think that a lot of the changes that we make, we've talked about in the podcast a couple times before, are transformational and would change people's lives enough so 
to marry someone like me, Hanks, and you feel even more in taxes. And look, as we also discussed in this podcast, we've got $35 billion in that plan for CMP, which is school breakfast and lunch, that would be a massive expansion of the program and take the work of the international piece to mandate universal school breakfast and lunch and, and really expand it significantly nationwide. So I'm, I'm actually okay with the, the, the number as a whole, but. Um, you know, I think either because they were afraid of the progressive caucus or because their view is like, fuck it, this is the one shot we'll have to pass something meaningful, let's just take it while we can. Um, or both, uh, they miscalculated their own party, right? I mean, the, the problem is the Republicans, the Republicans are not, never, never going to vote for this or anything else. They never did. Um, the problem was they either didn't see Mansion and Cinema and others coming, which means there's a horrific. Well, that's crazy, right? I mean, yeah, horrific. Talking about Mansion like the day after the election. Or more important, they just didn't work it out ahead of time, right? right. They could have worked something out and then kind of staged us in a way that there still would have been a fight, negotiations, concessions, and everything else. But you kind of it would have been preordained, right? You right. Would have and instead, they just like dove in the pool without like. Checking for a lifeguard or whatever stupid cliche or metaphor you want to create here. And here they are, kind of potentially drowning. I have to say, if especially if they don't pass the infrastructure bill um, and people can't get their Christmas presents, I think they're doubly screwed, right? Because it's like, look what happens with Democrats in charge. The basic functional government, like, ports don't work. Um, even when they have the both houses of Congress and the White House, they can't agree on anything, they can't get everything done. These people can't be trusted, and what that all does is it paves the way for Trump's re-election in 24, and that's the thing that scares me the most. As much as I would like to see infrastructure go past, as much as I would like to see the $35 billion for school breakfast and lunch and everything else that proposal, even more important, I do not want to see four more years of Trump, right? To me, that's absolutely, like all the things we're talking about will make the country better and we should do that. Trump's existence in power presents an existential threat to our survival, right? So fundamentally, that's the most important thing is keeping him out of office. And if the Democrats fail to pass something because they can't get their shit together, um, and then that's it because you're sort of honeymoon windows in that first year, and maybe they can pull it off next year, but if they don't, um, then Biden's either running for re-election on no record whatsoever, or he's done, and Harris is running for re-election on a record. Now, Joe Biden um, calls you up after this podcast, says, Bradley, come on down to the White House. I, I want your advice. Hold on. Do we think Joe Biden has ever listened to a podcast or even knows I, I, I know. We're, we're in fantasy land here. Let's, let's, okay. let's, let's okay. indulge the fantasy for a second and say Joe Biden um, realizes he's in such desperate straits that he's got to reach out to this guy he's heard about in New York named Bradley Tusk. Calls you in his office. He says, "Okay, how do I write the ship?" His, his team is run by the far left, and I'm they hate me. Okay, but starting today, Joe Biden or gets up tomorrow morning. What's he got to do differently? He he can't get people's Christmas presents on time. I think that might be outside his his. Uh, well, right. The number one is you have to show that you're at least fighting for it. So voters will. What about free Christmas presents? <laughs> yeah, maybe right. Uh, voters, I think, if they see that you're fighting really hard to do something, even if you don't succeed, a lot of them will give you credit for trying, right? And I know that Biden did something in LA, which I just talked a little more about sports or whatever it is. But if you genuinely think, and maybe they don't, maybe they just like they don't think inflation is a real concern, maybe they don't think the shipping delays are a real concern either. But if you genuinely think this is a real risk, um, 
you've got to make resolving this your issue. You've got to be convening the heads of all the ports and all the unions and figuring out what are the 50 things we need to do, even to make it a little better, right? Because right. if you do those things and there's progress, you can at least point to that and people know, okay, well, he's trying, right? And then you can say, look, I just came into office. This clearly is not, and I don't even run the ports, so the cities and states do, but I'm still fixing the problem. So number one is, They've got to be vastly more confident than they are. And I think part of the problem with Team Biden is they are all lifetime inside the Buffway kind of career DC creatures, um, and they just don't think beyond that, right? And so they don't see beyond that. And luckily, uh, that kind of worked for them in the campaign, but really has, has not worked so far in the first 10 months of government. So that's number one. And then number two would be, and I know they're trying to do this, but you gotta get uh, a deal done. And I don't know how what, much they're doing or not, but as someone who's passed a lot of bills uh, in the course of my career, uh, you have other levers, right? There are things you can give members of Congress to push them. There are things you can threaten them with. It doesn't seem to me, and maybe they are, we just don't see it, but it, it, it's not important that, that the kind of like Obama got in trouble when he when you cut some deals on the healthcare bill, like there was one for Nebraska, one for Louisiana, or something like that, to, to secure some votes. But at the end of the day, you know, I can barely remember what those things are, let alone anyone else, and he gets credit for creating, you know, uh, the ACA, right? right. Um, so I think ultimately, even if it'll look bad on Fox News or whatever else, uh, I think you just gotta get in there and go into old school machine politics. And for every member, basically, here's how I'm either going to help you or hurt you or both uh, until you get the deal done. That's how she gets done. I'm old school Lyndon Johnson. Um, yeah. The, the, respond to this, and then I want to move on to, to, to Trump. But, but the, it seems that in the Trump presidency, the, the Mitch McConnell and the Republicans in, in, in Congress and the Senate, they, they, they knew what they wanted. They wanted the Supreme Court nominations and they wanted sort of a general environment of sort of tax decreases and regulatory relief. It was clear. So they, they were willing to, you know, and they, most of them didn't like Donald Trump and didn't want to, you well, know. Well, hold on. There's one other really key piece to this, which was okay. sort of brilliant on their part, which is the vast majority of what you just said didn't really require legislation happening, right? right. They, yes, the Senate had to approve boundaries, but the McConnell was very good at that. That wasn't an issue. And all right. of the dismantling of environmental regulations, protection regulations, and things like that, um, they could do at the administrative level. So right. other than the big tax study in 2017, they didn't need Congress so much. Right. But but the interesting thing is, is the, the, the reason for the question anyway, is the Republicans seem pretty clear on what they wanted to, to a degree that the Democrats don't, right? So, yeah. You, you, like those those objectives are like, well, we can withstand all this craziness um, if we get these things. And the Democrats are like, well, we want 500 things. We're not sure what order we want them in. And yeah, that's, that's the fundamental. I, I, I remember when I worked for Chuck, for Schumer, and he was in the Judiciary Committee or whatever place he was on. Sometimes I would go to the, if, if the hearing was something I would get press, I would tend to go with him to figure out how to make sure he got his shit attention in it. And the thing that I always noticed the Republicans were like there on time, and they all had they all got the same talking points, and were all asking the same questions. And whether they were right or wrong, they had their shit together on a consistent basis, right? And the Democrats were a fucking mess. 
you know, people were wandering in and out, interrupting each other, and asking all kinds of different questions with different sort of agendas to it. Uh, and, and consistently, I just found myself more impressed with how the Republicans run stuff. And I do think that they're better at it. I think one of the really toughest in the podcast before, too. Look, the progressive movement has done in many ways an amazing job of reshaping the narrative and the agenda and everything else. The fact that we're either going to do 1.5 trillion or 3.5 trillion, somewhere between, on all progressive spending priorities is, is pretty remarkable. At the same time, they're so bad at execution. They're so bad at keeping people online. They're so focused on their morality purity tests uh, at all times that they're wildly ineffective. And their window is going to close. Like every movement, if they are lucky enough to, be able to create a window for themselves, it is temporal at best. That window right. closes, and either you made the most of it or you didn't. Uh, and, and because these guys are so ineffective at execution, uh, they are making the most of Right. So let's talk about Trump. Um, is it your operating assumption that he's running in 2024? Yeah, absolutely. Has it always been? I mean, that's that's the way you've looked yeah. at the world. I mean, well, look, there was a world where he either gets indicted or, you know, jailed or dies. And in those worlds, he's not running. But outside of that, yeah, of course he is. Uh, and look, it does, I would still love to see him get indicted somewhere, but I don't think they have the goods up. Right. Uh, it you know, is astonishing how the heat on that has just disappeared. I mean, you know, it was it was it felt like a year up to the election as all we were talking about is like who's got what, who's how are they going to come? Yeah, down I mean, and, basically, it came out like it seems like in New York at least, it's like Alan Wesselberg, his CFO, lived in an apartment that was a corporate perk that wasn't taxed. Like really, you know, minor stuff that does not yeah. lead to them jailing the former president of the United States, and maybe the case in Georgia's different and better, I don't know. But uh, overall, yeah, if, if he's not in jail, not dead, he's running. Because right. he only exists, as we know, to substantiate his ego at all times. And, and is it better for him if, if uh, Biden gets a pretty big price tag on his spending bill or worse? Worse. Because it's better for him if they just accomplish nothing. Right? Right. They just spent the last few years in the fire squad uh, blaming each other and shooting at each other. Uh, and ultimately, if... He has a better chance against Harris than he does against Biden. Right? He lost to Biden, um, whereas uh, I, I think he was back up better for you know, generally distressing reasons, but nonetheless, uh, against Harris. And if Biden literally, with having the House and having the Senate, still can't accomplish anything, they can't pass infrastructure or kind of you know domestic spending priorities on climate and on childcare and things like that, there is no argument for this man to run for re-election. Well, there may be no argument, but I mean, it, it's really not up to anybody but him. I mean, well, the, yeah, but he, but except, right, so if he were not so old, he'd run it, right? But there is a possibility where if you're Biden and you've accomplished nothing, you're looking at a loss and you're 82. Then you say, okay, I have no reason. But does anyone ever really think that way? I mean, look at look at you know look at look at Chuck Grassley running for uh, re-election in Iowa and kissing Trump's butt in the process. Like, so, so no, no, you're right. By the way, this is true in sports and this is true in music. Act, no one gives up. No, no one gives up. No one gives up. However, there doesn't seem to be any job that is more taxing than being president of the United States. Biden already seems like maybe he doesn't have a full grasp and handle on, on all of the work, or even his own team for that matter. And so is it possible that at his age, if it's also been marred by just four incredibly unpleasant years of constant failure, 
that he might decide, I don't want to do this again. Maybe, or by the way, he might decide, I do want to do this again. What's the argument? And I certainly, I'd vote for him over Trump, but, but if there were a third party, I'd vote for that. Because, you know, what's the argument for someone who had both chambers of Congress and still couldn't accomplish it? Do you think there are significant Democrats out there taking a hard look at, at Harris versus Trump and considering the alternatives? Yes. Yes, I do. Uh, I've had one or two. Conversations and, with and people. What are, those, what are those alternatives? I mean, what what you know? They they they've obviously made a big deal of this historic uh, uh, first African American female vice president. Um, pretty amazing. So what what would have to happen is someone from the far left would have to jump in first, kind of like Sanders did in other places, and just throw it open and just say. You know, this administration was not progressive enough. They didn't leave up, live up to the progressive ideals, and that's why we didn't accomplish enough. And therefore, we have to change it. And that, and that person may be white, black, Latino, male, female. I don't know. Once somebody does that, then it creates permission structure for every other governor, senator, mayor, rich person who wants to run the jump in. Too. Uh, and the reality is that look, it, it, the most important thing to make sure that Trump does not come back into power. Whoever is the best suited person to beat him in 24 is who I'm for. Um, and if that's Harris, great. But if it's, I would rather her not be the nominee than have her lose in the general election. So, you know, the best way to test that is a competitive primary, right? In the last primary, she didn't even make it to Iowa. So I don't know that she necessarily does particularly well in the competitive primary, but maybe she does. Um, but either way, I, I would rather let the market function as it should and get the best possible candidate. Um, than just to anoint someone who can't, can't really compete. All right. That's a good place to leave it, I think, um, although we'll obviously be returning to it um, probably every week. Um, uh, let's talk about baseball for a second, although not uh, sure. not the outcome or the, or the team so much as this um, kind of uh, extraordinary end to a great series between the Dodgers and the Giants where the final out was made on, a, on what – it looks to me like a totally blown call. I, I mean, the the if, if the check swing rule, the guys. Uh, yeah, he didn't go around. He, he didn't go maybe around. we could just explain quickly what happened because even if you're not a baseball fan, the way we're going to talk about yeah. this, I think, will be somewhat interesting. Um, yeah. So, Do- Dodgers and Giants were the two best teams in baseball this year. The Giants won 107 games, which is an incredible amount, and the Dodgers were 106. So, like, really unprecedented to have two teams do that well, but they're in the same division. So, as a result, by the Giants finishing a game ahead. They won the National League West. Uh, Dodgers had the wild card. Dodgers then had a, a one-game playoff against the St. Louis Cardinals. They won. Set them up for a five-game series against the Giants. And it all played out true to form. So it's 2-2. Game five. Uh, we're down to the ninth inning. Giants have a guy on base. Two outs. Uh, bottom of the ninth. And Will Flores, former Met. Former uh, Met. Checks his swing. Uh, I don't think he went around, but the umpire said he did. Strike three, game's over, Dodgers win. So yeah, it was the um, first base umpire too, who does make that call. That's the that's the proper person to make the call. But it was weird because he made such an emphatic thing and he looked sort of pleased with himself for having ended the game with what I might have had money on that. <laughs> well, I think I want to talk about that aspect. So the issue that we want to talk about is now if there was a a, a robo ump uh, uh, calling balls and strikes, um, probably that call would have not been made. Um, is that better for baseball? Is it inevitable? Yes, it's better and it's inevitable. Because ultimately, look, while there is some whimsy of human frailty that, that can be kind of 
someone like Frank DeFord or whoever can wax poetic about it. Is he still alive? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I haven't heard him on, on, on public radio in a long time. Uh, in reality, we want them to get it right. All we want from our, our referees uh, is just to really sort of not determine the outcome either way, but just to enforce the rules so that the people competing get to the right outcome. And, you know, saying, oh, we don't want the best technology, like saying, oh, this umpire, his vision is declined, but he's not allowed to wear glasses or get contacts because, you know, that's artificial in some way. It would ruin Frank DeFord's mood. Um, well, I know Frank DeFord's for the door, but I was picking off for no reason. Uh, but, uh, but nonetheless, yeah, you know, tennis or I'm not a big tennis fan, but I know they already do this, and it seems like it basically works. Um, yes, you know, all the fans care about is the call being right, so they feel like their team won or lost fairly. No one ever wants to hear or talk about the umpires or refs or anything else in any context other than that. And as a technology, you can get that better than human beings can and just use technology. Yeah. So it's it's it struck me as as uh, with the spread of legalized gambling that there might be a new pressure point on this issue, because, you know, with many more Americans betting on sports, you know, when when games are decided by blown calls, I, I, I suspect that it will create uh, outrage. I mean, I, I it must have in this case. I mean, there must have been people who bet on the. Uh, on the Dodgers, who were just went crazy. I mean, I would, Giants, yeah, um, yeah for sure. Look, I mean, there was only that one scandal in the NBA, Tim Donahue, that I would call specifically, you know, uh, umpire fixing games, uh, referee fixing games. But, but, but that's sure. the only one we know about. I mean, I think if you were really good at it, right? Over the course of a season, I mean, if if you were a big gambler and you had a bunch of NBA refs, for example, in your pocket, and you said, "Look, I don't need you to tip games. I don't need you to do anything." But over the course of the season, give me a hundred points, right? A hundred points in one direction, and with that, I can go from winning forty nine and a half percent of my games to fifty one percent, and you know, with leverage, I can be, you know, I can make millions and millions of dollars. So. Yeah. The the I, I would say that in all the pra, you know like point fixing and game fixing stuff, the refs are the 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 critical piece of it, or or the or the most vulnerable piece of it. I would say. Yeah. Um, so why don't we eliminate that vulnerability? But it's tougher in sports like basketball and football, where there's where there's just one judgment call after another. I mean, there aren't strike zones. I mean, the, the you know you look at football games and you see like I mean, there's literally a penalty on every play. So. All right, but in the NBA, there's often a question that they get the shot off before the buzzer, right? right? I, I'm not an engineer, but I'm pretty sure that if I called up the engineers and so said, hey, guys, can you figure this problem out? They have some ideas for them. So I, I think that you can find examples in every sport where technology could, could make a difference. And, and to be fair to Major League Baseball, they're experimenting with this. Okay? It's class A baseball. They have robot ops that are working together in concert with the human umpires. Uh, to see if it works, and, you know, hopefully it will, and we'll go I was alarmed to discover that that system is overseen by a Danish technology company. I, I, I can't believe that. They're the best. They're the best. They're the best, the Danes? The, the assembly Voting, who is, who is leading the uh, fight to, to build the new mobile voting technology as a Danish company. Wow. So, so you're, uh, you're... when it comes to technology, the, the, the Danish are excellent. I know they're. I know they're. They're. They're great on wind technology too. So maybe. Uh, maybe. Maybe Denmark is the future. Um, Succession uh, premiered last night. I'm going to just say right away. I didn't watch it. Just cause I. I will watch it, and I do. I am interested, but I. I haven't seen it yet. I know you watched it. I did. It's a very short review and tell us what you liked about it. But more importantly, explain to us why. 
we care so much about this television. Show. So, so the, the review is: if you like Succession, you will certainly like uh, the first episode of season three. It was just as good as the rest of it, totally consistent with it. And if you don't like Succession, it's not different. It will change your mind. Uh, but here's the thing: so you and I were talking about this before the podcast, and his question to me was, "Why do we care so much?" And so, first of all, I'm not sure that we do. So we know that Succession <laughs> gets. Um, a lot of attention and press and podcasts and critical love and everything else. And we know that people like us really enjoy it. And that, that may really include a listener to this podcast too. But at the end of the day, it may just be a show for rich, highly educated people in New York and San Francisco and LA and one DC and one two other places. Um, and it may not really appeal to the rest of the country, but because the Influence makers and tastemakers, never who we think are relevant, um, all fit into that category. They're watching it and loving it, and so therefore we we, we do too. Um, but look, I, I think ultimately, why do we like this? Especially for those of us who live in a place like New York, and, you know, functioning worlds that are you know that what they talk about in the show or adjacent to it is you know it celebrates our lives. Like, look how glamorous we are. We live here in this city and we work in these important, exciting industries. We have all these resources. At the same time, it makes us feel better about ourselves because we feel morally superior, right? The, the Roy family is morally inferior to everyone, right? There's literally almost no one on the earth that couldn't feel morally superior to them. So here are these people doing these things that are interesting, um, that in some ways validate your own life because you do things that are sort of vaguely similar. At the same time, even though you're doing those things too, you know, you're not doing all the horrific things they're doing. You're not killing people and dumping them off on the bridge or destroying evidence or all the things that they do. And so it's sort of the, it, it's the best of all worlds. It, it validates us both in terms of our career choices and our lifestyle and our moral superiority. See, I don't feel the moral superiority piece of it at all. Like, I think, I think that the, the, it's, it's almost the opposite. It get, it's like, what if you were just a total outlaw? What if you just didn't give a shit? You know, it's sort of like it's 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 like the wire in that sense, like like as much as David Simon wanted to make this really progressive kind of like hard hitting thing. Ultimately, it was like good guys versus bad guys and people want to be the bad guys. And, you know, there's. Well, this- yeah, totally. So look, there is. I, I've thought about this a lot, which is arguably the best thing you could be in life is a sociopath. Right. <laughs> um, because. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> like ultimately, you know, if you don't believe in an afterlife, which which I don't, right? Um, then ultimately, the only consequences of your actions would be legal or what other people think of you, right? Right. And if the second one is completely removed from the equation, you don't care about what people say, what they think, what society says, what's right, what's wrong, embarrassing, or anything else, and you don't think that you're rewarded or punished in some sort of afterlife, as long as you stay at jail. It gives you carte blanche to not only do whatever you want, but to feel perfectly good about it, right? You know, guilt and shame are incredibly powerful forces in stopping us from doing engaging in lots of different types of behavior. If you lack those two things completely, um, then all you got to do is, is have some good lawyers or stay out of jail. So, yeah, I mean, the Roy family, that's one thing. That, it, it's a good point. You don't see there's all kinds of flaws and frailties, but you don't really see moral culpability or guilt coming from it. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it, it's like they don't have it. They're just able to suppress it nearly all the time. Um, and, but what makes it interesting is they can't suppress it all the time. 
Um, and then it does kind of bubble back into their lives. But anyway, I got to watch the first one. I, I think the show is amazing. And I, I, I have, I, I just, I hate the idea of like appointment viewing now. Like I, I don't ever want to feel like, oh my God, it's nine o'clock. I got to turn the TV on. Um, so I, I didn't, but, um, so along those lines, I don't have an HBO max on my TV in the city. Uh, I have it on the TV upstate and I had to watch it on my computer. And at one point, oh, really? HBO Max was on Amazon Prime. So you get to it through that. But now, uh, so I've tasked Lyle with this just to figure it out. Um, yeah. But it was, it was, I watched it at appointment time in the den, but on a laptop. It was all you see, um, what you need to do, Bradley, is channel your like inner Anna Wintour, and you know, just get one of your fine, technologically savvy. Um, employees over to your house. I, I, like, I, I already had, Baz was already there a couple of Saturdays ago to fix the Wi Fi. I can't make him come back to the HBO. <laughs> if I were a sociopath, I could. Exactly. He'd be over there right now. I'm not. Exactly. Okay, we have two more things to talk about, and then we're going to let everybody go. But um, right. I, I, I love uh, the the Katie Kirk moment we're in when America's sweetheart has decided she wants to be Darth Vader, and it's trashing everybody um, in her new book. Why is she doing this, Bradley? I, I love it too. I mean, she's doing it because it scratches a lot of interest for her, right? She's relevant again. This is someone who desperately needs validation and attention at all times. Um, she got to settle a bunch of scores. Um, and she gets to feel like she's the truth teller, right? A little bit like Kendall Roy on, on Succession last night. Um, and so, I, mean, look, I always say this, and I have no particularly strong view of Katie Kirk one way or the other. I don't really care about her, but kind of good, good for her, right? Which is, you know, people are paying $25 for your book or whatever it is. Tell them the whole story. You know, they're, they're paying uh, to find out what happened, you owe it to them to actually tell them what happened. Look, my book was, you know, one, one millionth as sort of notable as Katie Couric's. But when I wrote it, there were things that I said about people, like Chuck Schumer and others, you know, who, uh, you know, and Cuomo, who were definitely unhappy, Elon Musk, who were definitely unhappy about it. Um, but at the same time, I felt like if you were willing to spend your time with me and pay for this book, I owe it to you to tell you what actually happened in these situations, um, not just sort of what would put me in the best standing with these people post-publication, and that's what I did. Now, all those people don't like me, uh, but nonetheless, I still feel good about it. I think Katie Couric did that, too. Did you see the detail that her, her deceased ex-husband, not ex-husband, but her deceased husband um, is a was a Civil War reenactor kind of freak? Um, and he, as, as I guess it's, you know, it's most popular in like everybody wants to be on the Confederacy. Apparently that's like a big thing. Um, I have a friend who's actually living in Czech, in, in Czech Republic and apparently civil war reenactment is like a big thing there. And everybody wants to be a, uh, on the Confederacy, like even in, what, but are they, is what in Czech, is it everyone wants to like the serves or do they want to be? No, what do you mean? What are they, they they want in Czechoslovakia they're reenacting the Americans. Yes, did they just have their, they just have their own? Yeah, but I guess it just doesn't have all the pomp and circumstance of the American Civil War. You know, all the cool uniforms and all the you know the the kind of like great. So look, you know, clearly from a moral and optical standpoint, if you are on the Confederate side, it raises a lot of questions about you. If someone is a Civil War reenactment fanatic, but they are always on the Union, right? They're Ulysses S. Grant every step of the way. <laughs> um, is that still questionable, or are they okay because they're they're always on the good side? I I, I mean I think it's better, but I'd say it's still questionable. It's you still know? weird, right? It's still kind of weird. weird. 
Still yeah, those are the people who are not watching Succession. Yeah, they're probably not listening to the podcast either. Um, no. Okay, so one final question. This is a weird one to be the last one because it's actually kind of a big weighty issue. Um, but Amazon is uh, in another... Amazon's in trouble about a thousand things every day. Um, but the one of the issues they're facing right now is antitrust with the government. Um, they're, you know, apparently tapping into their data and copying the the products that are successful sold by third party sellers on their um, on their platform and 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 generally sort of exercising their power to kind of get in front of the line of people selling things with their own products. Um, so I'm I'm, ha- I'm happy about Congress. It was a bipartisan group sending a letter to the Justice Department looking potentially criminal penalties for Amazon's uh, alleged behavior. Um, I, I'm, I'm pleased to see the Congress being aggressive on the antitrust. And maybe this is specific to me as an early stage tech investor that I kind of have a, a bugaboo about this. But, you know, not every single company, it is, every tech company is the same, right? Amazon has much in common with the C and Series A companies that I invest in. Uh, you know, as, as, as I do the New York Yankees or something like that. Well, actually, let's pick a good team, the Dodgers. Um, so, um, to me, what you want is as much competition as possible, but at least as much innovation as possible. And those are the new ideas uh, that create new jobs, new industries, new technology, new benefits for consumers, and everything else. No matter how smart Amazon or Apple or Google is, fundamentally, they still have their way of thinking, right? And even if it's a brilliant way of thinking, it's still limited to their own mindset. And if you had tens of thousands of other people out there competing, thinking differently, most of those ideas will fail, but a couple of them will, will get through, right? And some of those will disrupt those those giant companies, just like Amazon did to Walmart in some ways. So um, fundamentally, you want as much of that as possible. And when those companies have so much market power and there's so little antitrust oversight, that they can get away with using uh, their power and their data and everything else to squash all competition. Ultimately, it's the economy that loses. It's this consumer that loses. So uh, I think putting put pressures again on this is what supermarkets do. This is what department stores have always done. You know, you, if, if something's selling and, and you can make it cheaper and sell it cheaper yourself, I mean, how would you not do that? Like that that's Yeah, what, but the difference is that the, the supermarkets and uh, department stores are A, you know, they're, they're not getting the proprietary confidential data of the people they're copying. Well, they are in a, in a way, right? I mean, it's not it's not bits in a computer, but they see what's happening inside their own store and they track it and they and they use it to 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 modify their their techniques. I mean, it's it's a different scale, but it's the same thing. All right, fine. But he, 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 let's, let's grant you that. Uh, still, they don't have monopolistic power, right? No one has a share of the supermarket uh, overall market uh, or the department store market um, that allows them to then box out everyone else, right? You have lots of small players, highly fragmented industry, you know, competing, right? And so that's very different than when you have one company like Amazon that is the absolute king of e-commerce. Well, what what percentage do you think Amazon represents of all e-commerce in the world? Is it probably it's under five percent? I'm sure it's probably like two percent. All e-commerce. I, you know what? Rather than making up a number, the listeners will sit here while I Google. Oh, you're going to Google maybe, it? Maybe Jack, maybe Jack can edit some of this out. <laughs> I think it's good if he doesn't. What percent of e-commerce is down at thirty-seven percent, according? And that was in twenty seventeen. Thirty-seven percent of all e-commerce. Oh, oh, now, forty point four percent in twenty twenty-one. 
according uh, to insider intelligence. Wait, almost half of all the e-commerce in the world goes through Amazon? Yep. So, you know, you still take the decision. I, I, I will take it seriously, but I'm 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 surprised at that number, and, and I, I'm, we're going to return to it next week. Knowing that uh, it is forty percent, don't you think that there's real risk of Amazon's anti-competitive practices really stifling new ideas? And I guess, but I mean, like you know, like all the supermarkets in the world with their terrible brands of cola didn't beat Coca-Cola, you know. They didn't beat, you know, they didn't come up with breakfast cereal that stopped Kellogg's. They didn't, you know, they didn't, they didn't stop Stouffer's Pizza. You know what I mean? Like they could have, I guess, or could Yeah, have. but, you know, but, but look, but there are new brands, right? So, you know, Mountain Dew, right, became a very popular soda. So, like, things do break through, and it may not totally dislodge the incumbent, and it may not knock off every trend's interest, but new products make their way into the market because they are good enough that consumers want um, I guess we're going to leave it there. Bradley, congratulations on the excellent fast Googling. Um, I think you did a really good job. That, 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 that's my true that. skill set in life, yeah. I think we have hit upon the thing, though. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a meeting later today with Lyle and talk to him about the new um, Tusk Strategies arm um, for lobbying parents. I think that's just like a Yeah, there's, there's big money there. Yeah. There we go. All right, Hugo, thank you. Uh, who do we – on Thursday we're doing Caitlin Freeman from Hey Jane. Is that right? That's correct. Cool. All right. It should be a really great episode, or it was. We already recorded it, so uh, please listen on Thursday. Thanks. Thanks, Bradley.